Welcome to An Economist Goes to College, a podcast about the economics of picking and paying for college. I'm your host, Beth Akers, economist and resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. Today, I'm excited to have Michelle Singletary as my guest. Michelle is a money columnist for The Washington Post and author of several personal finance books. She was recently described as a walking, talking, vigilant consumer protection bureau. Although to be clear, she doesn't let you off the hook either. In this episode, Michelle and I are gonna discuss something that has bugged me quite honestly for a long time. And it's how we seem to value the mantra of follow your passion over spend carefully when it comes to looking at college. And it seems to be leading a lot of people into later regretting their decisions. Michelle and I may agree on this aspect, but we do disagree on another big one, and that's whether people should be borrowing to pay for college. So I'm looking forward to a discussion today that will highlight our agreement, but also hash out our differences. Michelle, I am so pleased to have you with us today. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. Great. So I'm going to start with the, the premise of this episode. Are we too romantic about college? We absolutely are. And I understand why. The message has been received loud and clear that for many people, college is a necessity to lift yourself up economically. So we got that message. Parents got that message. Kids got that message. Where we go wrong is that we also follow that with college at any cost. Right. That somehow it's going to be a great investment. But you wouldn't necessarily say that when people invest their own money. You just say, oh, do whatever because it's going to pay off. Mm -hmm. But that's what we do with college. And so what parents hear, and you have to understand the dynamics of how people make money decisions to know why this goes wrong. So people pick and choose what they want to hear. So we say go to college and what they hear, they fill in the gaps at any cost. Right. And so they tell their children, they basically give their children a blank check. It says, baby, do all that you're supposed to do, get good grades, apply to all these great colleges, and we're going to figure it out later. And that's not how you approach going to college. That's not how my husband and I approach the conversation with our children. And so I get it, particularly as it relates to minorities, because we know that we're already behind economically. We're already more discriminated against. And so college education cannot just lift our own families, but the extended family members, because the more you make, the more you can help them. Mm -hmm. And so they've got the message, but they only heard at any cost. And that's where I have a problem. We, with our own children, did not approach it that way at all. We said to them from the time they understood the concept of money, we're saving for you to go to college. You can apply to whatever college you want, but if you don't get enough free money to match the money we saved, you cannot go. And so we saved from the time they were little people. And when it came time for them to apply for college, we said, go ahead, but you aren't getting a blank check. And there's two votes to one. That's the other thing. <laughs> so it was a, you know, three-fold rule. And the parents went. And, you know, some people were like, oh, you know, what if your kid got into Harvard? What if my kid got into Harvard? We don't have Harvard money. <laughs> we had University of Maryland College Park money. Right. And that's how we made the decision. And that's what I teach folks to do. Don't think about college as this grand thing that you have to do at any cost. Yeah. You know, you said people are only hearing part of the message, which is that college is just this magical thing that you need to do. And they're not hearing the part about you got to think carefully about what you can actually afford. But are we even sending that message? Is that message out there for people to hear? Not really. <laughs> no. 
And, and it's not out there because we have given families a blank check by the way of financial aid. Mm -hmm. And so when people hear financial aid, they hear free money, but financial aid is not free money. Most financial aid is actually in the form of loans. Right. And so the terms that we use are misnomer. And so families hear that and think, oh, my kid's going to get free money. And I tell them, especially around springtime when they're trying to select colleges, like, oh, you know, my kid got all these AP courses and they're going to get financial aid. And I say, okay, what's the financial aid? And it's mostly subsidized and unsubsidized loans. Mm -hmm. And I think that's wrong. Counselor schools, they don't focus on the bottom line cost on a monthly basis going forward once everybody finishes school, what that's going to cost to the families. And their studies show you, even your work shows or your book, what it was, a game of loans. Game of loans. That's right. Talked about the fact that most of the students graduating couldn't even really tell you how much they borrowed mm -hmm. and what it's going to cost them every month. And that is a huge problem, in my opinion. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I'll jump in just to say that little bit came from some research that I did with my co-author, Matt Chingos, where we went to a college campus and we were trying to set up this experiment to get people to have a really nuanced understanding of how much their debt was going to cost them to pay it back. And so we're there as these like wonky researchers trying to convince the financial aid officers, you can let us do this, you know, and we'll send these letters, and we'll teach your students, they'll become really financially savvy. And one looked at us in the face and said, are you kidding? These people don't even know how much they've borrowed. You are totally out of touch. Yep. And what turned out, she was absolutely right. The kids had no idea how much they were borrowing. And that was even, you know, right after they had started borrowing. Yeah. They don't know. The parents don't know. They don't know how many loans. They don't know who owns the loans. They know nothing. Mm -hmm. And I put that blame squarely on the parents or their guardians. Yeah. Because at an early age, 17 and 18, what do they know? Nothing. Yeah. Nothing. It's tough. But what do you say to parents? Because what I keep hearing is that there's just immense pressure on parents to do this and to write that blank check. And, you know, I'm an economist. I've written books about this. So I think I'll be able to hold my ground when my son asks to go to a college I can't afford. But what do you tell to parents that feel that pressure? Is, is there... There's something you can say to make them feel better about yeah. limiting the options their student has. I tell them one story, and you're much better at this. You've got this data, but I have the data, and also I think storytelling helps as well. Absolutely. And so what I tell them is that I went to Baltimore City Public Schools and then a state school. I ended up at the Washington Post, which is the equivalent of, you know, a top New York law firm or wherever you want your kids to work, you know, medical doctor, you know, whatever, lobbyist. And I got to the Post in my late 20s and just across me at the desk, dear friend of mine, got to the Post. We got to the Post at the same time. We were about the same age. He went private school up in New York, Harvard, you know editor of the Harvard Crimson. I mean, the whole full resume. Hear me, little Michelle from Baltimore, who, <laughs> whose parents abandoned her and was raised by her grandmother. We both got to the post at the exact same time. Mm -hmm. Earning a, well, he might have probably earned more than me. <laughs> but we got to the post at the very same time, different paths educationally. And that's the story. That's what I tell them. Yeah. You're so worried about where your child is going to go to school and you take on so much debt that it really is, studies show, is that the motivation of the child, how much they do in college, wherever they go, and they can still get to that place that you want them to be without all those decades of debt. 
And that's what I say. I'm at the post, went to state schools. Somebody else went to, we both got there. And then I asked them, where do they work? Mm-hmm. And they'll tell me. And I said, so where do people where you work, went to college? And it's everywhere. Right. Community college in mm-hmm. four years, state schools, private schools, Ivy League. And then I asked them one question, which makes them pause and think, and where do you all work? Mm-hmm. And the light bulb goes off. Well, I graduated from a large state university as well for my bachelor's degree. So that resonates with me when you say that. I'll take that advice to heart in 15 years when I'm having these conversations with my son. Yeah, it is hard. Put it in practice because, you know, when they're they're looking at you, (laughs) especially if your child has done everything that you've asked them Mm -hmm. to do. Our eldest was an AP scholar, over 4.0 average. And she wanted to go to UNC. Beautiful campus. I mean, it's like the campus you see in the movies, mm-hmm. you know, kids on the lawn and the sun shining. And we visited it. It was beautiful. She painted her room in UNC colors. <laughs> and she's like, I'll just die if I don't go. I'll just die. And we applied. And of course, because my husband and I are upper middle income, did not qualify for any merit aid or financial aid. And we told her she couldn't go. And she's like, I'm going to die. Well, you're going <laughs> to die because you're not going to UNC. And it turns out she didn't die, did she? She did not die. (laughs) (laughs) She went to the state school where we could afford. She got partial scholarships. We paid the rest. We also paid for her graduate degree. And you know what? We stood our ground in the face of this kid who did everything that we told her to do. But we were not going to sentence her to decades of debt, nor ourselves. She went, she did fantastic, went to honor college, she went on to grad school and graduated with no debt while her peers all had debt. And it's only then that she came back to thank us and finally said, my friends are talking about, I got six months, I got six months, meaning that after the six months of not having student loan payments, they kick in. Right. And she said, I don't have that fear that my friends have. Mm-hmm. And that's what my husband and I held on and knew. So as parents, you have to look down the road. You have to know what it's like at the end of that journey and stand your ground. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I agree completely with what you're saying. And it's actually what impressed me when we did an interview together recently, because I felt like you know, as common sense as that advice seems, it's not advice that we hear very often. So it was really refreshing for me to hear it. And, and it's refreshing for me to hear it from you today. I wanted to recount one of the, the callers from that interview we did together. I, I remember them calling in and talking about how they had put their student loan repayment on pause because of the program that's enabled people to do that since the beginning of the pandemic. And you called her out and said, wait a minute, you still have your job. Why aren't you you paying? Right. And, you know, that is just a like so wildly different from the sense of entitlement, dare I say, that is really dominating the conversation about higher ed finance. So I wondered if you could talk about where do you think that's coming from? You know, again, I think it's because there's such an effort to make sure that you rise up economically that you not just be middle class, but at a point where you can earn enough to do more for yourself and your family. So I understand where that's coming from. But again, the message is not the financial wherewithal of how you're going to pay this back. And so I hear that story all the time. And so we mix these stories about people in in student loan debt quite often. Mm -hmm. And you talk about this in your upcoming book, right? About, you know, that it pays off, but let's look about how it pays off. And this whole 
deferral and forbearance balloons uh, student loan payments. So I was on a call, I was teaching a class of couples who are about to get married about finance. And one woman said she had $195,000 in student loan debt. And obviously a lot of that is graduate debt. And it had ballooned to $300,000. And I said, my goodness, what is going on? And of course, she had put it in deferral and she bought a house. And I'm thinking, what are you doing? You already had a mortgage. (laughs) Because the conversations were centered around when you talk about entitlement is that they were going to get married and she was setting aside this money. (laughs) <laughs> for, for a wedding. And I oh said, boy. you need to take that money and pay your student loans off. It just doesn't resonate with people, the weight of this debt mm-hmm. and how it can impact you going forward, your ability to not just buy a house, but maybe get out of that mortgage before you retire or save for your own children's college education. If you've got $300,000 in debt, it's very unlikely you're going to be able to save for your children to go to school debt-free. We've got to get the message out that, yes, college matters for most people. Yes. Well, this is where we're going to probably differ about college loans, right? Because I'm like, no loans, no loans, no loans. Right. But if you're going to take it out, take out as little as possible and then go to a school that you can afford forward without this decades of debt. Mm -hmm. And that is the message that is missing from this whole college debate. Mm -hmm. Well, so yes, this is where we probably vehemently disagree. In my book, in fact, I recommend that people use loans to their advantage. And one of the arguments I make is that the interest rates are really low on student loans, and there are very generous safety nets, plus the potential that there'll be some sort of sweeping legislation that forgives those balances in the future. So (laughs) what I'm arguing is essentially, if you are an incredibly disciplined individual who could take the money that you would have spent towards college, set it aside and invest it and just don't touch it, but then ultimately use it to pay back your debt, you're better off if you have taken on those loans. And, but I'm guessing that you don't have the faith that most people are <laughs> are as diligent about their finances as would be necessary to make that work. Yep, yep, you're totally wrong. <laughs> Can I tell you on your own show, you're 100% That's wrong. That's why you're here. That's why you're here. <laughs> Because here's the thing, Beth, you know the numbers and and what I love about economists and mathematicians and all, you are absolutely right about the numbers in terms of the leverage, using leverage. That's Mm -hmm. what you're talking about. Right. But I think where we differ is that I work with individuals on a a daily, monthly basis, yearly basis. So Mm -hmm. I see in in practice how people use their money. Mm -hmm. And you're right, I don't have faith because there's so much that goes into managing your money outside influences, peer pressure, all kinds of things. So what looks right on paper does not actually happen in practice. And also your theory, is hinged on everything going right. So let's just take this whole idea that the interest rate is fairly low. Mm-hmm. All right, so what is it now? I mean, well, it's much lower now because the Fed has reduced the interest yeah, rate. Yeah, let's call it 3%. Let's say, let's say 2 3%, but there was like 6 and 8%. So let's, say, let's just say it's 2%. Okay, yep. let's just go with that. Sure. Except if you lose your job, it, it doesn't matter at all what the interest rate is because you've got a loan payment that you can't pay. Yeah. So 2%, even at 0%, there's a loan on your books that you can't cover. You and both your spouse lose your job. It doesn't matter what the interest rate is. And so what I'm saying is use the money that you have now to pay it off so that in the future, if something happens that disrupts your income, you don't have that on your books. And that means that you can weather that storm a little bit longer. 
What about income-based repayment, Michelle? Do you feel like that's a, a program that people just shouldn't plan to rely on? Because I obviously believe that it's an important piece of the piece of the program. I think it's important in retrospect, but going, mm-hmm. if I'm talking to two groups of people, mm-hmm. they've already made the decision, they've already had to go home, then yes, use those programs to give yourself some breathing room. But if I'm talking to you at the beginning of the process, you don't get those loans to begin with. <laughs> um, and don't count on them still being there. Look at even the public loan forgiveness program. We see now, because we're right at the point where people can take advantage of it, right? We're yeah. right at that 10-year mark, the 10-year anniversary of the creation of that program. Right. And and the studies are now showing, the data is now showing that lots of people aren't actually getting that loan relief because they didn't do things the right way. They didn't have the right loan. They weren't at the right employer. And so very few people are actually getting that loan forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And until recently, even if you got that loan forgiveness, that debt would have created a tax debt for you. Now that's yeah. changed with the pandemic laws, but you see how things sort of change and, and happen. And, and, and so I like to plan in the now. Mm-hmm. So now do what you can afford. My husband and I saved for all three of our kids to go to college. You know, we got unsubsidized loans for them. We did not take a dollar of it. We had saved for this purpose. Why wouldn't we use that money? And why wouldn't we use it? Because we're saving on the other areas. We're saving for our retirement. We have our emergency fund. We're going to pay off our home loan before we retire. If you do all the things in that other area, you don't have to play that arbitrage leveraging things that more sophisticated people play. Right. Because rich people use that because they actually have the money in the bank. And if they lose their job, it doesn't matter because they're really rich. And they have an accountant who can help them manage these things. Exactly. The average person doesn't have that. And any disruption, which can happen at, you know, if you're making six figures can happen. Look at what happened with the pandemic. So many professionals lost their job or saw a reduction in their income. And these were people solid middle class and now are struggling. And if you don't have loans on your books, when things like this happens, then you can recover much more quickly. So mm-hmm. that's why I encourage people to have a no loan <laughs> policy. And it's like my, my pastor says this about me. So I know I'm way over on the other side of no loans, but I mm-hmm. can get you close. As to am me. I on the way other side of right. pro loans. So, so let's <laughs> try to get people more in the middle because if yeah. I teach you to hate debt, to loathe debt, to understand how it will weigh you down, mm-hmm. guess what usually happens psychologically? People take on less debt, right? Because they're so fearful. And if they take on less debt, then they are in a much better position when life happens. Because guess what? Life will happen. Yeah. I mean, I, I, at the top line, I think we'll agree to disagree. But I, I absolutely respect the point you're making. And I do think the ideas that I'm talking about do require some sort of sophistication to be able to utilize them properly. And you're right that things don't always work perfectly. People don't always have access to perfect information so that they can arbitrage these programs perfectly. And so you're right. I think erring on the side of caution to some degree is the right way to go. The degree to which you should err with caution, I think, is where we we disagree. Yeah, and Um, I love that you disagree. You're still wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So are you, Michelle. But thank you anyway for being here. (laughs) Well, Michelle, there's another question I have in this space. You know, you're recommending that people – don't use debt 
But the obvious implication for that is that people with means have access to far more opportunities than people without financial means. And to me, that's kind of the point of the federal student loan program, that it really opens opportunities, quote unquote, seeks to level the playing field, even though we know it, it far from levels the playing field. But how do you answer to that? You know, when you, when you reject advocating that people use these sort of tools to access opportunities that they wouldn't be able to afford otherwise. Yeah, well, you know, in America, there really are two sets of rules. There are rules for people who have money and there are rules for people who don't. And if you don't have money or you're a minority, you can't use those other people's rules. You cannot. Mm -hmm. You know the data as well as I do that, that, especially when it comes to Black Americans, when they take out money for college, they have to take out more. And they also end up not getting, they have the debt and no degree. And so you can't follow those rules because the fact of the matter is a lot of times you get halfway through, you either can't borrow enough anymore or it's so much you end up dropping out. Yeah. And and you end up dropping out not just because of the affordability, because there's a whole bunch of other stuff happening in your life that is unique to being a minority in this country, particularly if you are first or even just second generation going to college. You know, when I went to college, I was the only one in my, among my siblings and my family who went. And there was a lot of stuff going on. A lot of, um, it was not, they weren't helpful mm -hmm. because they saw that I was achieving. And there was a lot of uh, resentment about that. Now, mm. that resentment stems from systemic racism, Jim Crow, slavery. Because to get a degree, to get an education, you could risk your life and the life of your family. Mm -hmm. And so that is baked into our psyche. Mm -hmm. And so when you achieve, they see it as you're trying to be better than them. And so you have to deal with that. And then you have to deal with the fact that you may be one of the few in your family who's making a decent income. And that income has to spread across a number of other people. So with my husband and I, we actually have created a savings account to help our siblings and relatives who haven't done as well. Your paycheck has to go further than your immediate family. Mm -hmm. So when you bake all of that into whether or not you should take out a loan, that's what I'm talking about. Because you've got, yeah. you already have so much pressure psychologically with your family, economically. So those rules don't apply to you. Yeah. I can't carry loans and also carry my family. Yeah. And so you can't listen to that. So what I tell them is the option isn't just not go. It's maybe go to community college for two years mm -hmm. and then transfer to the four-year university. It's go to community college, transfer to a four-year university and commute. You can't have that idyllic college life that applies to people with those other rules. Yeah, I think that's really important to to point out that, you know, by taking some options off the table, you're not eliminating pathways to financial prosperity that do exist. But we often forget that there are low cost avenues to to getting a career that's that correct. pays. That's correct. You can't you can't do what those other people do. And that's, I'm just going to be I'm going to mm -hmm. use frank language. Yeah, we we can't do what white Americans do in many cases. We just can't. If we have all this debt and we go get a home loan, we're going to get a higher interest rate than that white person who went to college and has debt. Mm -hmm. And that impacts our, our cash flow, our monthly cash flow, right? Yeah. We're going yeah. to buy a home, but we're going to buy a home in a neighborhood where our uh, property values are depressed because of discrimination. Mm -hmm. And so I can't rely 
on all the equity that I would have in a home that a similarly situated white American would have. Mm -hmm. And so when you pack all those together, you can see why me getting a loan is much different than a white person getting that same loan. They're going to get an advantage that I'm not going to get, and that is going to impact my cash flow. So that's why I say you can't do what they do. Michelle, I really appreciate that perspective because I operate day to day in a space where we think about the way things should be. And so I I feel kind of um, refreshed to hear you speaking to people about making decisions that are best for them, given the way that things are. Because I think that when we dream about what a perfect world could look like and we give people ideas about what they should be doing based on that, we're we're giving them wrong information and right. you're you're being honest about what the reality is and and suggesting that people make decisions based on that reality yeah. i mean what i love about you beth is that you've got the information you your heart is in the right place uh-oh that's no, never no, good no, 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 no. to start no. with your heart is in the no, right no, place what i'm saying <laughs> is that you you haven't been able to because of who you are walk in our shoes right and so when you're making policy based on the facts on the paper, which are completely legitimate, but it doesn't put it in context for those folks who have a different path. Mm -hmm. And we are still fighting things that aren't packed into your data. Mm -hmm. Look at what's happening now with the voter rights, you know, walking those things back. I mean, discrimination, racism, all of that is still with us. It just pains me to have to say all this stuff in the sense of we can't, we're not in your world, right? Mm-hmm. Your world does not treat us the same way. Mm-hmm. And when I say us, I mean minorities and also low-income families. Mm-hmm. We're just, we're in two different worlds. And we can't make decisions based on the idyllic way that you look at Textbook things. Textbook economics. Exactly, right. <laughs> Which is why behavioral economics is, I love behavioral economics because that sort of yes. kind of, talks about the psychological way to handle your money. Mm-hmm. So we're sort of talking about sort of the same kind of thing, right? Like the numbers, yeah. I have a master's degree in business, so I get the numbers and they do make sense. Yeah. But in practicality, when you add people's behavior and all the things that are happening still, it doesn't work out for a lot of families. Michelle, that's really helpful. And you know, I feel like often in conversations with people where I have a difference of opinion, we're, we're talking past each other, but I enjoy talking to you because I feel like our arguments are actually engaging with each other. So I hope that's helpful for our listeners too. I want to give you a chance before we end the conversation today to give kind of some top level advice. Our goal with this podcast is to reach people who are thinking about how to pick and pay for college, either for themselves or for their children. So, you know, if you've got one or two takeaways for those people, what would you like them to hear from what you've said today? I'm going to preface it a little bit with, um, I hear you and I understand that you want the best for your child, that you want them to go even further than where you went. As a parent, I get that. I have three children. I want more for them. But I also understand having worked with hundreds of individuals, looking at their actual budgets, not what they think they spend, but what they actually spend. And I want you to make that college decision based on what you can afford, because that's going to be best for you and your children. 
the more you obligate your cash flow to debt, the less likely you are able to weather a financial storm, but also save for the things that you need in the future, like your retirement. We already know that most Americans are behind in their retirement planning because the money's just not there. And it's not there because they've got a lot of loans on their books, home loans, car loans, student loans. And then also as parents, it is the hardest thing to say no to your child, especially if they've done everything that you've asked them to do. But you have to remain the parent. You've got to be steadfast and this is what we can afford. And you need to have that conversation early and manage their expectations. The time to talk about college and affordability is not when they are a junior or senior in high school. It is when they're in middle school. And you're saying, baby, this is what daddy and I make for a living. This is what we can afford. Let's work together to make sure you go to a good college within our means. And then finally, recognize that you don't have to send your child to a brand name Ivy League elite college for them to succeed in America. And if you hear nothing else, I came from nothing. My parents abandoned me. My grandfather was an alcoholic. My grandmother was crazy. <laughs> she was great with her money, but very strict. So all this stuff is playing in my life. And through all of that, I was able to still go to college and still end up at the Washington Post. Because of the way I handled myself and your child with your backing can do the same thing without you sentencing yourself and them to decades of debt, which in the end limits your ability to build wealth for you and your family. College is important. Go, try to go, but there are different paths and always look at your bottom line. Your bottom line will tell you what you can do and believe it. Michelle, thank you so much for being here, sharing a bit of your personal story today, as well as all of your expertise in this space. I think this is going to be a really useful conversation for a lot of people, and I'm really grateful for your time. So thank you so and much. Thank you. And you know what? I love that we agree to disagree, but in a way that I think will still create really good policies because your viewpoint is completely valid and mine is valid, but, and together, we can make better policies that will serve people. And ultimately, I believe that is both our missions. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Michelle. You're welcome. If you enjoyed the conversation and you want to learn more, please subscribe to the show and also check out my new book, it's called Making College Pay and is available right now on Amazon. Have any comments, questions, or topic suggestions for me? It would be great to hear from you. You could send me a note from my website, bethacres.com, and find me on Twitter at Dr. Beth Thanks for listening and talk to you soon.